Well, welcome to you all. I'm Michael Lerner. Uh, how many of you are at Commonweal for the first time, just out of curiosity? Anybody? Great. Welcome, welcome. Uh, welcome to Commonweal. Welcome to the new school at Commonweal. Welcome to the end-of-life conversations at the new school at Commonweal. Um, we're really pleased to have you here. For those of you who are new, uh, Commonweal, uh, founded in 1976, is Health, Environmental, and Educational Center with a dozen uh, major programs working in those three fields of health, environment, and education. The new school is our newest program, and the end-of-life conversations are the newest uh, initiative of the new school. And I'll introduce uh, Mike Witte and Susan Braun in just a minute. Um, I'd like to ask, uh, we have a number of alumni here from the Cancer Help Program. How many alumni are here? Could you raise your hands? Great. And um, just to say, the End of Life Conversations is an initiative that was brought together by a board staff committee at Commonweal, uh, but really under the leadership of Susan Braun, who is our executive director and uh, who has spent most of her professional life working with cancer patients uh, as the CEO of Komen for the Cure, uh, the breast cancer organization, and at the American Society of Clinical Oncology Cancer Foundation. And for the past two years, uh, it's been a significant part of her work as executive director of Commonweal. Our partner uh, organization in in this series is the Coastal Health Alliance. And Mike Witte, Dr. Mike Witte, is the medical director of the Coastal Health Alliance. And um, really a, a very uh, tremendous contributor uh, to the community of West Marin. Uh, my wife, Cheryl Patton, and I drove up to Point Reyes yesterday to have my uh, foot looked at because it was not walkable. And um, so I got to visit the Point Reyes Clinic, which we don't usually go to. We usually go to the Bolinas Clinic. And it was a Saturday, and uh, the waiting room was completely full. Most of the people there were Latino. They were people who couldn't take a day off from work during the week to come. And so the Point Reyes Clinic is open on Saturday, I think in significant part in order to serve that community. And just watching the clinic in action, the um, front desk staff was entirely Latino, entirely bilingual. The nurses were, uh, the one I saw was uh, Latina and also bilingual. Uh, and then uh, the physician I saw, Dr. Kristen Kambacher, who many of you know, who lives here in Bolinas, um, was just a model of the kind of compassionate physician care that Mike Witte has uh, modeled for so long for West Moran. Uh, Charles and I live with Charles' 99-year-old mother, uh, Mary Ann Patton, and she's now in her 100th year. And uh, when Mary Ann goes to the clinic, it takes her a little while to explain what's going on with her and to feel seen. And uh, again and again, I've just marveled at the patience and the uh, dignity that is afforded to uh, patients in um, uh, West Marin at the Coastal Health Alliance. I honestly believe that if uh, 
American healthcare could look like the Coastal Health Alliance with the key role of nurse practitioners and nurses and extraordinary physicians who were used effectively, American healthcare would be a great deal better off. So, um, you know, we're really honored by the partnership uh, with Mike Witte and the Coastal Health Alliance when we proposed it. He sent us back an email in about a minute that said, of course, you know, no questions asked. And, um, and it's that kind of mutual trust uh, uh, with the Coastal Health Alliance that we feel very special about here at Commonweal. So um, with that, I will turn this over to Susan Braun. And um, we ask you to turn your cell phones off. Uh, make sure that you do that. Um, and the only other thing I'll say is that many of you know that we run the new school on a true shoestring budget, a homeopathic budget, I often say. And, and your contributions really, truly matter. So there is a jar out on the front desk there. And if the moment affords itself, I may literally, at some point later on, pass a large straw hat around for those of you who would like to consider a contribution while seated. So with that, I turn uh, this over to Susan Braun. Susan. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight, and learned too late they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death, who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Susan, um, we've been, seems like we've been at this now for several months. Uh, when you first came, or you were sent to me as an oncologist by your uh, internist. And um, as you remember, you've had to go through a bunch of stuff. Yeah. There have been a lot of tests done, blood tests, and of course the CAT scans. And uh, one of the things, so here we are, and uh, after all these tests, as you've pretty, pretty much been aware, there's some serious things going on here. And one of the things that it looks like we're finding is, is that this cancer that you've known is there, pancreatic cancer, 
has been has spread to your liver, and it looks like it might have also spread to the lining of your lungs. So, what that says is, is that the possible surgery that we talked about, remember this Whipple procedure thing, yeah. that that's really not an option. I know we talked before about the fact that with this Whipple procedure that we could de increase your chance of survival after five years to as much as even 40% possibly in some studies. But that's not an option now. So what you do have as a, as a good option that's been around now for several years is some chemotherapy. And there's a chemotherapy agent, as we say, that's called GenSAR, G-E-M-Z-A-R. You can certainly look it up. And the GEMSAR is something that has made a big difference in terms of people's ability to survive and have some meaningful survival, uh, even up to five years. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to get together with you again soon, and perhaps with a member or more of your family, someone that could actually, we could have a conversation with and that is important to you to have here. So we could talk about that, because I think that one of the things for you to look at is that this is not a hopeless situation. Uh, in the 60s and the 70s, somebody with a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer had basically zero chance of living, certainly five years, but a very minimal chance, maybe 5% of living even 18 months. Now that's different. There's as much as a 20% chance with your diagnosis, which means this pancreatic cancer that's spread to your liver, it's, so it's metastasized. But still, with this medicine, and there are some other medicines out there as well, that it can make a difference. So this is not that, a hopeless situation. So did you just tell me I'm dying? No. Okay. No, that's not what well, I said. What is it that you want me to do? Well, I want you to, I, well, I want to give you some information before you leave here today, and I'll ask my nurse to give you actually some written information about this medication in particular and also some other medications and other possible treatments that, that are available for this particular disease. I want you to understand the disease as well as you can, and I'm happy to answer any questions that you have. And, and then to take that information, take it home, talk to your husband about it, talk to your kids about it, and come on back and let's decide what is best for you. So if I, if I take this medicine, is that going to help me live? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. There's, and okay. the thing, here's, here's so the thing. So we're going to fight this? Of course. And we're going to fight it together. Okay. We're going to fight it together. So this is not a death sentence. And in fact, the reason that the medication and other medications like it are out there is to help you to be able to have a better chance of surviving. So I'm going to live. You have a better chance of living with the medication than you would without the medication. Okay, then let's do it. I want to. I want to start tomorrow. Well, I want to fight this. I want to fight this. That's a great attitude to have. This is not a hopeless situation. This is not a death sentence. I'm glad you see that. I'd like you to think about it a little bit more and take in some more information. I think that's a really important part to how you're going to do with this. And of course, we'll be doing some regular tests. You've been through a lot of these already, but if you, and I want to set this up with you in a much more organized way. So we won't start it today, and probably not tomorrow. We can start it as, as, as very soon, though. 
we have what they call an infusion center where you can get the medicine and we can be and you can be watched and, and tested. And tested means getting some regular blood tests to make sure that the medicine isn't doing anything that it shouldn't be doing to you. Uh, that we can measure, and then also we'll talk, of course, and I want you to read also about the possible side effects of the medicine. But you think this is something that's going to help me? I do think it's very likely going to help you. I think that the chances of it helping you are good, and that they're good enough that it should be something you should explore. Then let's do it. Okay. If you think I should do this, then this is what I want to do. Okay. Well, we'll get started, and I'll give you a, uh, we'll make another appointment soon. And we'll get it set up. I want you to take the information home. I want you to read it carefully. We'll talk next time I see you about the, how the medicine's taken and the potential side effects, things to look for. And I'll also give you some prescriptions for medications that you can use for the potential side effects that you could have. Okay, but we can start next week. Absolutely, we can start next week. Okay. So... Dr. Witte, you and I have talked about this um, a little bit, and I'm, I'm concerned about what pancreatic cancer means for me, and I've thought about how I want to spend the rest of my life, and I have some real, some questions, some things I want to talk to you about. I want to know more about treatment, and I want to know about not being treated and what they mean. What it means if I choose not to be treated. What does chemotherapy do for me? How long will it let me live? What, what do the data tell me? And how can I make this decision wisely? Well, I'm glad you came to me. And uh, I'm glad you're looking for what you said was a second opinion about mm -hmm. this, you know, after rethinking a little bit. Because there's no free lunch in these decisions. Let me ask you, um, what, is, what is, first of all, is your understanding of what you have? Well, from what I've been reading and from what my first doctor told me, um, this is a disease that will likely end my life, um, that I maybe have six months to live. And some people live longer than that. Um, I've read about, and my doctor told me that surgery is not likely to work for me. So I've been reading about chemotherapy, and it, frankly, it sounds brutal. And I don't know if it's worth making the choice to have this very brutal treatment. I don't know how brutal it is. I've never done anything like that, so how would I know? And so I'd really like your advice about whether or not that makes sense what data there are that help me know um, and help me decide about doing this or thinking about other things that may be either a better way to spend this last part of my life, if that's what this really is, um, or even other kinds of complementary or alternative therapies that may offer me something else. Well, it sounds like, well, here's what I hear in what you're saying, mm -hmm. is that what is, and, and tell me if I'm reading this correctly, but that you're really concerned about this, the, the chemotherapy, the chemical, mm -hmm. and, it's, and how, what it's going to do to the time that you have. Right. 
is it going to, and this is the question I hear, is it going to meaningfully extend your life and, and what are the chances that that will happen? Mm -hmm. um, and what, with the medicine and without it, are the differences in the quality of life you would have? Right. What are your big concerns about both the length of your life, in other words, what you might miss? Mm -hmm. That's important for me to know. Okay. And so that sometimes, you know, getting to somebody's like the birth of a baby or a wedding or something like that becomes so important to you or your family or both of you that that, that might be something that drives you. And then, so sometimes that's an important thing to take uh, into account. And then uh, the other piece that I think is huge, and it sounds like you're thinking about this um, as, as a priority too, and that is, what's the time going to be like with or without the medicine? Right, exactly. And, and how, how is this going to feel to me physically? What, will, what is the chance that it will give me six months of life or a year of life? What can you tell me about that from, from your experience and from the experience of others that will help me make a good logical choice? I would like to be logical and thoughtful mm -hmm. as, as I make this decision. And, and, and I want to answer that question, but I also want to just be sure that I'm, I'm being clear about what's important to you. Mm -hmm. Because I don't, it's easy to, for me to sort of mm, infer things that might just be from my own experience or other patients. Right. So it's really important for me to know what, what you need as mm -hmm. far as what those, those statistics mean. Right. And, uh, and also um, what is really important to you in terms of what you want to have accomplished in however much time you have. So, in other words, how active do you want to be? Mm -hmm. um, what, how, how much is pain and avoiding pain, of course, an important part of dealing with uh, whatever might be in front of you? Pain from the, from the medicine, perhaps, or side effects of the medicine. And then also pain from the, the cancer, which is a real part of the cancer, mm -hmm. that is. So those are things that I think are important that uh, sort of I take into, I want to take into account, you know, in responding to you. First of all, the medicine, whether it's gencitabine or genzar, is, uh, is relatively new. So there's another medicine called 5-FU or 5-fluorouracil, excuse me, and some other medications like it. These I are read all, about that. Yeah, okay. chemotherapy. And they all have been used, well, they've been used for significant periods of time. So they're not experimental medicines. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the statistics on their actually extending your life in a meaningful way past one to two years show that they don't make a huge amount of difference. They may increase your, uh, the, uh, your with this kind of cancer and the sort of uh, uh, all the characteristics of it, your chance of surviving more than a year would be increased maybe from, say, let's say, and again, these numbers are always a bit of guesswork, but because you bring something to this that is much more, of course, than just the cancer. So everybody is different in terms of, of what you can expect. But when you look at a bunch of people who have mm -hmm. the condition you have, your chance of surviving a year without any chemotherapy or other medical, allopathic medical intervention would be probably five to 10%. With that medication, it's probably 20 to 25%. So you're telling me that still the chance of surviving a year is far less 
than the chance of dying within the year. That's right. That's right. Your chance of not being here a year from now is better than 50% given any expectation that medicine can bring to bear. And that doesn't mean you won't be here. It, does, it doesn't mean that necessarily, but it does mean that any intervention to change the possibility of your being here is much less likely than 50% to make a difference. So, I mean, looking at that, how, how is, you asked me what I want. I mean, obviously I'd like to live longer, um, but I'd like to spend more time with my family and I don't really, uh, I've seen your infusion center, I don't really want to spend a lot of time there. Well, just to How tell you... How much would this mm -hmm. take? You would be there for a good part of a day, back and forth in logistics, probably about uh, once a week or so. Um, and there are side effects. There are significant side effects. You may have read about some of them in the literature. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of side effects. They're, they're don't, they don't happen to everybody, honestly. There are people that I see that have minimal side effects and seem to get on pretty well. But they're always pleasantly surprised when that happens. And so am I, to tell you the truth. When they don't have the side effects. When they don't have the side effects, that's right. Because the side effects that you've read about, the severe um, pain, ironically, mm -hmm. that can cause diarrhea, the hair loss, the sores in the mouth, uh, infections because of the uh, bone marrow depression, which causes your white blood cells, which help you fight infection, to not work efficiently. All those are things that are real. So if I want to travel to Europe with my husband and if I want to spend time with my kids who live on the East Coast, um, I'd need to be here once a week. I might be getting infections. I get, you know, I might need medicine for that. That would probably mean I'd go back into the hospital for things. Um, it sounds like I'd be pretty tied down. Realistically, yes. I think that's really true because you'd be getting um, you'd be getting a lot of advice, and you'd probably get some from me if I were making this decision for you. That once you follow that track, mm -hmm. which is a track really to try to extend your life, mm -hmm. and it's not impossible. I think you also have to keep that in mind. It's not it's not impossible that it would extend your life. It's just that the, the statistics are not great that it's going to make that difference. And yes, you would be tied down, and the chances of some significant side effects that can make you pretty uncomfortable, weak pretty miserable for a good part of the time are there. They're real. So the, your likelihood of being able to sort of extend yourself, travel more, be with your family um, would be less likely. Now, there is a middle ground in here. And the middle ground is to uh, gather your family around and help them to know what you're facing and then to see whether or not some of that, for example, some of that travel might be something that could be brought in so that you could be more the center of that life rather than having to go out. That's another decision. But it, again, focuses around your disease rather than what you would otherwise do if you didn't have to deal with treating the disease mm -hmm. for extending your life. And there are other ways to treat the disease. Okay. Well, thank you. Looking at it this way helps me to take more into account than just whether or not I'm going to live and die. I mean, it sounds like there are a lot of things I need to, t to think about. I need to talk to my family about. Mm -hmm. um, 
Will you be my partner in this? Absolutely. Will you help me through this? Absolutely. And I do want you to hear that there are other treatments other than life-extending treatments. Okay. There are a lot of treatments. They don't necessarily... What would they do? Those would help you to get to a place where your life could be as close to what it is without the cancer as possible. Relieving pain, helping your appetite, mm -hmm. helping you to be as strong as possible. Sustaining your immune system as much as possible. Running marathons. Uh, maybe. You might be able to do that. Okay. You might be able to do that at the get-go. I would say that as the disease progresses, it's likely that you would get weaker. This is the kind of a disease that affects your ability to digest food, and so that would become an issue eventually. And so you're likely in any event, and if the medicine or the chemotherapy weren't working or working like we think it statistically probably would, eventually that would happen as well. Okay. But at some point, with or without medicine, it's likely you are gonna get weaker. Without the medicine, you have, there's a likely window where you can have a life that's pretty close to what you have right now. For a while? For a while, for a while. I'd say that while would be somewhere between three and 12 months. That's likely, it's possible it could be longer. I have a lot to think about. Um, how soon do I need to make this decision? Do I need to decide this right away? I think you've already, you already have information that will allow you to make a decision in your own time. And I, I think that one of the things to not feel now, you, you know, the pressure is there from the disease. The disease has created yeah. its own pressure. Yeah. Okay? What I think is really much more important for you to do is bring yourself to this in, your, in the strongest way you can and feel like, you know, once I make my decision, if my decision is not so much extension of life, but quality of life, mm. then what becomes important and how do you do that best and how can I help partner with you to make that as, uh, as good as possible and to minimize the amount of effects of the disease. So if I'm hearing this well, and I don't think I'm hearing everything you're saying, but if I'm hearing this well, then whether I choose active treatment or, or not, whether I choose to take this chemotherapy or to choose some of the other things that you talked about, um, you'll work with me either way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this, this is, is something I can decide? Yes, you sure can. With my family? You can decide. And I think one of the other things to remember is that this road branches in many different places wherever you want it to. It's your road. So that if you decide to go in a direction of, let's say, you decide you want to use chemotherapy, and then you decide, oh, this is not for me, I, you know, this is, I don't like this, or it makes me too sick. It's at any point along the way, you're the boss you can stop and take another path. If you decide conversely that to not do that and to take a not so much life extending possibility through medicine, then you could also change, the, change course and say, you know, I think I do want to do that without feeling like, oh my gosh, it's too late. That's never the case. So I can change course in the middle of this Absolutely. at some point. Yeah, Either that way. That again is up to you, you betcha. Okay, well let me go back and talk to my family and I'll let you know what I want to do. Good. Great. Thank you. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks. <sighs> Dr. Witte, we have been doing this for four months, and I'm tired. It's hard. I'm losing weight. 
I'm getting sicker and sicker. I, I don't want to do this anymore. When we talked before, you said that you would help me if the time comes to change my mind about things. And I, I've changed my mind. I want to let go. I, but my family doesn't want me to do that. My daughter has a, a child on the way, and she really wants me to be there for that. And I don't think I have this fight in me. I don't want to do this anymore. How can you help me? Well, as I said to you earlier, we're partners in this. Uh, as a doctor, a medical doctor, healing is my profession. Healing doesn't mean life-extending. It means trying to help improve whenever it's possible and in whatever way I can or we can, the quality of your life. When you get to a place in your life where it feels like there's nothing more that, and you've seen the possibilities that we can provide, and you've looked also into some very good alternative therapies that have, I'm sure, been helpful to you. But if nothing is really taking away some of the weakness and it's some awful. of that pain. It's awful. Then I think that there's, there is, you're at an, you're, what I hear you're saying is that you're at an end, your end, whether it's the end for your daughter who wants you to be here for the birth of her baby. What do I say to end. her? She doesn't want to listen to me. She doesn't want to, me to give up. She wants me to fight. She wants me there when her daughter is born and when my first grandchild comes into this world. Mm -hmm. But that's six months away. Why don't you try it out on me? Just, I'm, I'm your daughter. Try it out again one time. So, honey, I know how important it is for you that this baby is coming. And I would love nothing more than to be there to meet her. But what I'm going through right now is just too hard. I'm not saying I'm giving up, but I, I need to stop this sense of fighting because it's taking every ounce of energy I have. And I'd rather spend that energy in my last couple of months or however long I have with you. And if I don't make it until the baby's born, then I don't. I'll write her letters, but I can't do this anymore. But mom, you've always said that you wanted to have a grandbaby. You've always said that it was so important for you to be here when your grandbaby was born. How can you not want that now? It's not that I don't want it. It's that I can't do this. I just can't do it anymore. It has taken every ounce of energy from me. And I'd love for this last time that I have to be as comfortable and as pleasant as it can be. I don't want to go back and forth to the clinic every week. I don't want to have you and your dad have to take me places all the time that I, I just want some rest. I want some quiet. I want some fun time with you. And if I don't see the baby, then that's what it has to be. You know, is what's really true, Mom, is that I just don't want you to leave. I don't want to leave you either. Um, And I hope I'll be here for a long time. If not in your presence, then in your heart. But I'd rather you remember me at a gentle time 
at the end of my life than at a time being miserable, being unhappy, being sick all the time. I don't want you to remember me that way. I'll always be here for you in some way. Well, it's just really hard for me to hear that. I know. It's hard for me to say it to you. But I'd rather say this to you and have us talk about it than, than have you wonder what I wanted. And I want you to, I hope you will honor my decision to stop this now. I hope that I can. So do you think, Susan, that she would react that way? Is no. she going to obstruct? What's she going to do? I don't. She hasn't. Thank you. You were good. But It's not her, huh? It's not no, that easy. She doesn't even want to have this conversation. But mm -hmm. this was good practice for me. I'm not that strong when I'm talking to her. When she tells me I won't be here to see her baby, I lose it. I can't talk to her. And she won't talk to me. I don't know how to have this conversation. I think it may be that the conversation, besides maybe the one you and I had, the other conversation, and it may be one that I can partner with you about, having her sitting right here, okay. is a conversation. And I think that's a better conversation, one where I can be another voice for you, mm -hmm. recognizing, to, and through my experience with other folks that have gone through the same thing, that the almost the kind of the certain, the inexorable kind of march toward a lot more pain and suffering that you don't want to have to endure is something that I, as a doctor, as someone who's in the healing profession, mm -hmm. can support. So I can bring her here and you'll talk to her I too. hope you do. I hope so. Here she comes. Wow. Sure. Um, so, Dr. Woody, this is my daughter, Kira. Hi, Kira. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. You know what your mom's been going through, and I understand that it's really, really hard for you to accept that she is saying that she's really, really tired and really doesn't want to fight anymore. I understand, but it's just, it's just really hard. I know it's hard. It's I really, hard. I mean, I, I would like her to fight. Can you tell, tell me and, and maybe her again what it is about that fight that's important to you? Well, um, I just want her to be around. Sure. You know, I just, that's the main goal. And what she's saying is, if I hear her, is that she won't be around. She won't be that mom that you know who could be around because she'll be so distracted with being tied up with the pain and the weakness that she won't be able to be present for you. And the chance of her being here and being the mom that you want to be here when your baby's born is very small, I can tell you that right now. For her to be the person sitting here now that if you had your baby right now, that we could all celebrate, the chance of that being the case is, is very, very small, almost negligible. And so instead of this mom here, you would actually be dealing with someone who probably wasn't, wouldn't even be able to enjoy in any real way 
your baby, or you. And I think that's what I hear your mom saying. Am I correct, Susan? Thank you. This is something we haven't been able to talk about, but I hope you'll listen to Dr. Witte. I know you don't want to hear this, but I can't do this anymore. And I hope you'll accept that and be here with me for whatever comes. I want you to be happy too. I want you to be as comfortable as you can. Thank you. Thank you. And Kira, I want you to know that you can help her and be with her and not, what becomes important to me with this is that this doesn't start driving a wedge between the two of you. Because what I, what I hear in what your mom is saying is, is that in her making this decision, it allows her to be more with you now. And so if it, if it were to feel like, well, you know, this is really, this makes me angry because she just doesn't want to be here for my baby, that's not what I hear. I hear something really different. I hear that she wants to be here now with you, who she obviously loves very much, so that she can celebrate you and, and she told me that she wanted to even write letters to the baby if she's not here. How does that sound? Not great, but okay. It's not easy, and I wouldn't expect you to accept it now, but I think that it's really important to your mom that she has some control over what happens for her because she knows how difficult it is for her right now to be able to deal with the pain and the weakness that is likely going to get worse. And she's going to need your help to be able to deal with that as this disease moves along. Does that make sense? Yeah. It doesn't mean I don't love you. It's just... I, I love you too much for the end of my life to be something so ugly that that's your memory of me. I can't do that to you, and I can't do it myself. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you. Thanks, Kira. So, Susan, it sounds like at least Kira, and it's going to be a struggle, and I'm sure it'll be a struggle with everybody who loves you. And one of the things I think that, that you've done, you've done a, such a wonderful job of, and that becomes, it continues to be kind of important for you to take control of, is being able to know how other people can say goodbye to you. Because I'm sure there are people who can help me know how to do that people who can help me say goodbye and maybe even celebrate a little bit mm -hmm. along the way. But if it gets to be too painful, and I'm scared, I'm scared about the pain, will you help me die? Here's what I can tell you. There's all this legalistic stuff about what doctors can do and my, what my license allows me to do. There's no question that there is much information out there and medication that is absolutely within the law that you can have at your disposal that would help you if you made that choice to end your life. That's not something I can actively take a part in, 
in terms mm -hmm. of well, but giving I you can. a shot. Yes, you can. Absolutely. You certainly can. There's, a, um, there's lots of information and good, healthy information out there from people who've been in your situation and organizations that support a, a healthy end to life mm -hmm. that you can certainly explore. And I understand that. And while I can't actively take part in your ending your life, I can certainly understand that that's an option that you and other people have in front of them and that might make a choice to do and that there are medications that are legal medications that are available to you right. that can allow you to do that. And so that's something that I can prepare for. Yes, absolutely. And have that option for myself um, and for my family. Absolutely. I, w I want you to hear something too, and that is this, that when, you know, when, when people have this conversation, sometimes it feels like, no, I'm really separating myself from everybody because I'm just kind of heading down that road to the white light and you know, I'm just kind of disappearing from my family. Sounds good. Ah, it probably does sound really good right now. Yeah. But you know, here's the other part to it, is that when you get that behind you, you've got that little capsule there that says, here's my out. Yeah. I don't have to be scared of just being miserable and writhing that there's a choice for me that it allows you to be more present. So that you, and many people, I would say the large majority of people who know that they have that option, never take, never take advantage of it. Mm. They just don't have to, because the rest of what you have, and the options that you have, and the kind of things we can talk about and trying to help you in terms of relieving your pain, can allow that process to just happen in its own way, without your having to take that rescue. So it's, it's there. That, that helps me think about what all there might be. Just to know that is such, it's such a comfort. I don't want to be in pain. I not, don't want to be in pain. Absolutely not. And we'll, we'll do everything along right. with the people from hospice who are just really what really do a very good job of helping with that and we'll partner with them you your family my organization hospice will work together thank you and you'll help my family absolutely and the more that you and i can meet with the people in your family the better so that everybody really understands what your wishes are and what the tools that you'll have and they'll have mm. to be able to help then that's what we'll do. Good. Yeah, I might have to take a breath before we go into the next part of this conversation. I'm not sure. Feels a little bit too real. It's a little scary. Um, it is a little scary. I gotta say though, Mike, if I were there, um, I'd want you there too. <laughs> that was seriously. That was just. That to me is what I think so many of us hope for in a doctor that's going to be with us when something is threatening our lives. And just the way, I mean, and we went through this on purpose to at first have 
you know, a doctor who's going to tell me what to do, and then somebody who's going to give me all the data, and I'm going to be real smart and think through all of this. But the compassion and the way of just doing this together, it shows us how that can be. Mm -hmm. It shows us how these conversations can And we're not talking about something. I mean, a lot of people say these take up a lot of time. We, you know, we talk for 30 minutes in all of this. Doesn't take a lot so of time. So it doesn't take that long for us to have these conversations together. Doesn't. So doesn't. what a model that is for no, it really doctors doesn't. everywhere and for, yeah. for people everywhere and how yeah. to talk with their doctors, with their children. Mm. Um, thank True. you. Sure. Thank you. I, I think that one of the things that this brings up for me is that there, are, there really are a lot of, I think the more that all of us in this room can sort of become the kind of the fabric of understanding that uh, uh, end of life, of course, is something we're all going to experience and that sometimes it just jumps at us, you know, mm -hmm. getting run over by a truck, so to speak. And on the other hand, many, many, many of us are going to be dealing with having to prepare for that event and looking at the different choices that are out there. And, uh, and I think that when we, when we sort of acculturate to uh, both birth and death as being not medical events, but uh, natural events that you know that all of us encounter, and and exploring the choices in both those in birth and death, yeah. uh, I think that will be a, a much happier culture and happier uh, population of people because of that. Um, and I say population in a way because it's kind of you know it's. Uh, you know, the, the, there's this baby boomer gray tsunami, right, that's coming through. And there's everybody always talking. In healthcare, people are always talking about this. And so resources are out. You know, there's a limited, limited number of resources. And mm -hmm. Susan uh, knows better than I how much of that resource is spent in the last six months of life in <laughs> yeah, futile talk about care. That a little bit, right? yeah. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, one of the things that, well, I've flipped that part. <laughs> we could go to that part now. Um, there are a lot of different things that people look at when they talk about the end of life and ways that they make their decisions in the end of life. And some of them are economic. I mean, some of them are the way that we hold what death is culturally. Mm -hmm. But let's, let's start with the, some of those the economics of it, because it's extraordinary when you look at how much money we spend individually and how much money we spend as a society um, at, at the end of life. Um, a lot of people I know have been bankrupted near the end of life for a loved one or for themselves with heroic measures. We tend to be a country that loves heroic measures. We love high-tech stuff. We like to, you know, fight, fight till the end. I have two dear friends who were both literally went into bankruptcy, um, and they were both insured. But the costs of the co-payments and the costs of the um, deductibles and everything that went along with it, things were so expensive. Mm. And so this was something that they and their family had to deal with in the last couple of months of her life, and two women, friends. Um, so just, I mean, some of the statistics, we spend $2.7 trillion in this country on health care each year. 
we spend uh, Medicare and Medicaid spend almost $800 billion a year on health care in this country. That's eight times the federal budget for education. And when you think about it, now Medicaid is a piece of that, which is for usually for indigent patients, not entirely. Medicare is what is primarily for people over 65, although also people with disabilities. Um, and that's, it's 21% of our federal budget. Mm. And of all of that money, 25% of it is spent in the last year of life. And again, people who've looked at Medicare and Medicaid data, 80% of people who get Medicare are in the hospital at least part of the last year of their life. And the, these are, are driving the costs. So that, see if I understand that, that means uh, of people that reach age 65 and who and then, and then eventually reach the last six months of their life, looking backwards, 80% of those of us who reach age 65 will spend some part of the last six months of our life in a hospital. Mm -hmm. Right. And yet all of the surveys show, almost any time you talk to people, we, we want to die at home. Right. No question about that. So what is it? I mean, as, as in your experience as a physician, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about some of these, the attitudes that we have in our society, and we talk about the... Um, the way doctors are trained, which is that death is failure. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to lose patients. And, right. and I'm sure emotionally that's very difficult, too. So what is it, do you think? What are some of the things? And I, there's not one answer, and I welcome your comments on this, too. But w what do you think are some of the things that, that drive us in this way, particularly in this country? Well, I think, um, I don't know that I have... A, a great answer for this. I just more questions maybe than answers because I see so many different um, approaches to death in even some of the cultures we deal with, the mm -hmm. Latino culture. We see a lot of Latinos, as Michael was saying, mm -hmm. who have a very different approach to um, their families, elderly, frail. And uh, so I'm saying it that way because these aren't people necessarily that have pancreatic cancer or lung cancer, but. Right. Uh, but that are frail and are likely going to not live for six months or, or so, and, and often don't. And there's, there seems to be a very cultural difference to how those folks, and I, I'm thinking of the Latinos, but also there's a Hmong culture uh, that I have a little bit of familiarity with, and, and some of the other cultures that are now endemic in, in our country, that just have a very different approach to the death experience mm -hmm. or the end of life experience. And the end of life not being uh, frailty, you know, just just that frail elder who is not producing, you know, who's not someone who is on a career path of production. <laughs> yeah, I guess <laughs> it's period. not just death we're afraid of; it's aging right. we're afraid and, of. And I, I mean, it's it, right. And I think that's where I'm going with frailty. this: is that I think instead of seeing our elders as those folks who are we are we are wanting to become, what we're wanting to become is not that. We're trying to pull back and you know, make the clock go backwards and get to the culture of youth and preserve ourselves in a way that says, no, I don't want to be that, that elder, that person who's forgetful, who has dementia, who has Alzheimer's disease, who's frail, who's dependent, as opposed to looking at those folks 
and the majority of, of us as we get to that place in our life as having a lot of, of uh, wisdom to impart, a lot of wisdom of experience, um, and a lot of wisdom just that is uh, by almost by osmosis, just being around. And I think that's one of the things that I see in, um, in some of the Latino families. It's very unusual for uh, a Latino elder to be put in a nursing home. It just doesn't happen very often. And there's a lot of them who are very frail and, and elder. And what I've seen a lot in our population, mostly campesino, which means the not necessarily educated population from Central America mostly, Mexico and Central America, is that um, they, they keep them at home. And these are folks that generally are uh, hard scrabble workers, blue collar, construction workers, restaurant workers, cleaning motels. But they, they keep their mom or their dad or grandma, grandpa in their homes. And often there's three or four siblings who will, every three months or so, just move mom or dad to a different home so that they share that, that uh, responsibility. But the importance to them is, it's just, there's no question. They don't question it. They don't say this is a, a big deal, we're making a big deal of it. It's just what you do. Mm-hmm. It's just what you do. And, and part of what they're doing is not saying, I'm too busy to be dealing with this person who's dependent on me that's never a question. It's much more, this is part of my, she, he is part of my life. They've given much to me, I'm giving back. But it's not even a conscious question. It's just kind of something that comes from their experience. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot to learn there, and I think that's not just unique to that particular culture that I just happen to see. But I, I think one of the learnings that we all should take away is that they're, they, the, um, that the elder culture is something that I think we need to look at in, in a very different, clear-headed way um, to see the positives of what aging does bring. Right. And then the extension of that. There are some. That, is you, you're telling me there are benefits to aging? I think there are. <laughs> Good. We'll have to talk about that we'll one later, too. We'll keep each other posted on that. Yeah. In fact, we should have a website that you know the benefits of aging. Um, I have hope. Right. But I think that just to get back to... Um, to what you were citing before, because some of those economic statistics, those things always come up, you know, and like uh, Medicare is going to break the, the whole bank and uh, along with Social Security, Medicare will do it first. And what Medi- it's not Medicare that's going to do it first. It's this that's going to do it yeah. first. And it's this attitude. Right. So, you know, I mean, there's, there's so much wrong about this futile care that, that is painful and that is isolating. Um, and it, uh, is, is, it really has so many negative connotations to it because it's basically just saying, saying to somebody who is stuck in a bed without their own clothes and has got a, a needle in their arm um, and is surrounded by strangers who are poking them all the time that you, you have no power left anymore. You're basically the walking dead here. Uh-huh. You know? So that needs to be turned around. That's key to me. But there's also an economic argument that's huge and it actually and that's the one those are the ones that work and so that you know the economic argument is we need to be a force all of us that says no it's not okay to be doing this care you know the death panels really are the death panels that do that care that's those are the death panels because what they're basically saying is that they're they're creating a walking dead population that has been disempowered doesn't, aren't themselves because they've been, they've been stuck in this isolated environment that's not their own. 
Um, and they're being given care that actually ends up with an unhealthy death mm -hmm. as opposed to the kind of end of life, including death, that's the that kind that about. anybody would want. I mean, if you say, okay, here's a line over here. You can enter the hospital and you know, have all this stuff done to you. And here's a line over here where you can be at home and get some other kind of care, including some of the stuff you can get in the hospital. That line's gonna be hugely long and this line's gonna have almost nobody in it at all. And you know, some of the studies that we're starting to see now fascinate me that, um, and I don't think it surprises all of us, but it's nice to see it in black and white and in studies being done at major hospitals around the country, that um, these heroic efforts aren't always saving lives. They aren't always lengthening lives and they aren't often aren't improving the quality of life. Mm -hmm. I mean, one study that was recently published that was done at the Dana-Farber Cancer Center in uh, Boston, at Harvard Hospitals, where they took people who had just been diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer, and they randomized them so that they could either receive, all, either uh, group got to have the treatment that they would normally have, but half of the people got a palliative care consult and got palliative care. And you may want to, as I talk about this, tell people who might not know, I think everybody might, but what palliative care is. Um, but what's real interesting is that the people who were in the arm that also got the palliative care had a better quality of life, and I'm not sure that surprised too many people. They used less active treatment, and they spent less money, and they lived longer. <laughs> you know, that was the sort of the clincher of this study, and that's what got a lot of attention in the medical press. And this is in the last uh, two months, I think, that this was published. And, and more and more people are beginning to look at this. Another study that I didn't know about before and that I just read about recently was uh, where they looked at claims data, like Medicare claims data, and found they looked at a lot of end-of-life situations, and they found that people with pancreatic cancer, for example, who used uh, hospice and had no chemotherapy lived longer hmm. um, than people who didn't. And that overall people with uh, patients who had congestive heart failure as well as patients with cancer um, lived longer in general if they were enrolled in hospice. Hmm. So some of this is not necessarily what we as a society at least, and many of us believe this in our hearts, but it's nice to start to see that that what we thought might be hastening the end <laughs> may actually be helping us live um, a better quality of life as well as perhaps living longer. You know, it's interesting uh, that what comes to mind, you know, looking at it, you say, well, you know, the scientists need evidence to show why that makes sense. Mm -hmm. All this evidence-based data, you know. And so, okay, if you have to prove something like that, when you get studies like this that show that people live longer, um, that's pretty darn good evidence. And uh, it really helps to make a case for certain kinds of treatment mm -hmm. so that the right kind of people, like health aides working in a home, for example, can get reimbursed <laughs> and where they often don't now. You talked about people going bankrupt in the last right. six months of their lives. A lot of times they're going bankrupt because they're having to pay for care that's not covered by Medicare. Mm -hmm. Because, like home health aides, for example, who often get paid minimum wage, but if they were paid a much higher wage, say a uh, licensed vocational nurse LVN wage, then and they were and that was paid by Medicare, the savings in that would be could, likely would be very huge, given the kind of right. things you're saying. 
And um, I think that the, some of the other stuff that comes to mind is, is that when you, when any of our, you take a healthy, any one of us who happens to be healthy and, and put one of these medications in us as they do to parole lab rats and the-, um, the Yeah, we're not gonna be doing that, right? No, <laughs> but, the, but the adrenaline levels in those poor critters goes way up. And, so, and that certainly hastens an end for anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that you, in a way, you're kind of running that marathon, chemical marathon when you're taking chemotherapy or any of these really aggressive therapies. Mm-hmm. And that kind of race is one that I think it, you can, it's not too hard for any of us, I think, to think about what kind of emotional place that puts you in when you're sort of in a desperation mode. And if there's a way with the kind of the right support from the people that care about you and vice versa, to get out of the desperation mode and to recognize that this is a time where I can, number one, be honored and can honor the people around me, mm-hmm. and I can I can gather my forces and just and, and celebrate, celebrate rather than uh, then try to uh, punctuate a medical event with uh, by as sort of sacrificing myself on that altar. Um, then I think it can make a difference. And I, I do want to say before, I, I, I want to be fair here, there are people that actually whose lives are truly extended and actually who survive things like exactly. this and get over them. Mm-hmm. That is true. It's just that it, when you see those studies or you see those, uh, the, those anecdotal studies of, of folks that make it through, um, what else did they bring to bear with, the, with their success? What else, what else made it possible for them to succeed? I don't think we have, for example, somebody who, this patient that we were just talking about, that, that Susan was, um, she might have survived this, but what else made that possible? It, was it just the medicine, or was it something else that she brought to that table that may or may not have been uh, related to the medication? And and we talk about that in the Cancer Help Program here at Commonweal. That's one of the things that we say is that people who come to the Cancer Help Program already are a selected group of people Mm -hmm. who are choosing to bring things, parts of themselves, parts of the community around them, a willingness to try different things, perhaps, to this this struggle. So, yes, um, I, I think there are many additional parts um, of who we are and what we do that might have quite an influence mm-hmm. on, on the outcome as well. You know, was something you and I talked about, Mike, when we were preparing for this was hope. And my friend Tom Smith at the Medical College of Virginia has done a lot of the research in um, end of life in oncology. And one of the things that he kept finding is that his colleagues, oncologists primarily, would say, you know, I can't tell a patient that they're dying because I'm going to dash their hope. How am I going to deal with that? And they did some surveys and found that when they were communicating, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about communication in a minute, but when they were communicating well um, they with their patients, the, they and they used a hope index, they did not diminish their hope at all. Um, so, and, and you and I talked about what it is we hope in, because so another one of the things they say is, you know, I've, I think that cure is just right around the corner. You know, we're spending $40 bazillion at the National Cancer Institute, so there better be one soon. Um, and I think it's going to be there for me. So talk about, talk about hope a little bit and what, what happens to hope as we're exploring whether or not to uh, get treatment at the end of life. Well, I think that that's you know, I, I think that's one of the things that 
I think uh, the way that we doctors in this country at least get trained, and I think probably in a lot of, of post-industrial Western countries, where the, the statistics that the World Health Organization puts out are longevity. So as we look at, you know, right. we got um, how many babies survive, survive birth, um, and longevity. Those are two of the big markers of success in terms of how medicine, how healthcare is affecting uh, a particular culture or country. So we often define hope that way. It's in numbers, you know, it's how many babies survive and how many, how long people get to mm -hmm. live. So I think that, that, that what we don't see is what's embedded in real hope is much more than that. I think that there is something about longevity that's important in the sense that it allows us to be able to be on the planet in a meaningful way, hopefully for a longer period of time and not suffer from things like tuberculosis and pneumonia, uh, plague and so, those kinds of things that used to do people in and, and childbirth, which used to mm -hmm. do a lot of women in, where women used to live by 38 years old in 1900, I think it was the average, and men were 43, and they, men and women both were dying of TB and women were dying of childbirth and, and tuberculosis. So it's not as if that's trivial, that, no. that we've been able to make, make a difference with that and give hope for a much longer life. But then again, I think that, that again, what's, what is embedded in that length of life? And what, how is the, what's the quality of life that we want to have gotten out of that, that hope, that hope that, gosh, now, now we, don't, we, we can get immunizations perhaps, we, can get, we have much better public health, we have closed sewers, all that kind of stuff that allows our lives to be longer. Yeah, but, but are they better? Uh, well, that's right. Are they better? And I think that those are, there's probably bigger questions in that that, that I'm not going to be able to answer because they have to do with a lot of the pressures that, mm -hmm. that I see. I mean, we see all these chronic diseases, you know. Right. And I think one of the things that, that and again, I, I don't want to get distracted from just the, the, the notion of hope, but I think that when, because what I deal with in, in folks that are 50 and up is, chronic illness and preventing it. First, preventing chronic illness, things like diabetes, high blood pressure, stroke, heart attacks, and then, but also in dealing with treating them. And even though our generation, the baby boomer generation, is living longer than any other generation in our country has, one of the things that is true is, is that we're also, at those ages, as frail uh -huh. as those few fewer folks who in 1950 or 60 might have lived that long as well. Mm -hmm. So that there's better medicine, better quote unquote, at least, but it keep, because it keeps that heart beating longer and more steadily. Um, and there's, there's perhaps it uh, cleans the arteries out a little bit better, but does that, that really make that quality of life better, that longer mm -hmm. quality of life? Maybe you've got somebody in 1955 who was pretty darn frail and lived to be 85 or 90, and certainly a lot of us have relatives that, that, are, uh, that fit that bill. Um, and medicines weren't as good, so maybe it was genetic, often is. But now we have so many more folks that are making it to 85 and 90 and beyond. But what is that? Doing what? And, and how are they? And what, sorry about That's that. Fine. But what kind, of, um, what kind of life are they leading? Mm -hmm. And are we leading? Mm -hmm. And what are we engendering, we doctors and we healthcare people engendering by helping quote unquote, helping more and more of us to live longer. And is that what, what really what our goal should be? You're right, we get taught 
they're not dying on my shift. No way. You yeah. know, that's not happening. Yeah. Um, and gosh, I did everything right. How come they die? You know? So it, that, that's, how we, that's how we get trained. And, and there's something, I think there's a much greater depth to what we in the health profession need to be able to bring to the table now, particularly now. Because there's a certain, you know, the healthiest human being in the world where nothing else goes wrong may live to 120 and maybe even 130, you know. Maybe, that, is that our goal? Is that, is, that, is that it out there? That's the holy grail, it's 120? <laughs> or is, is the holy grail finding the, the, uh, the richness in the life that we, that we get, that hope that we get through mm -hmm. some of the interventions? And these aren't just chemical, allopathic medical interventions or surgical interventions. They, they have a role. But... To me, that's sort of, that's the downstream role. You know, the upstream roles are the kind of stuff that I think that you're asking or embedded in your question about, well, what are we doing? You know, what, <laughs> right. you know, what, what have we created here? Well, and I think, too, just to be able to have conversations like this. I mean, that's one of the reasons we here at Commonweal have started this dialogue. And I don't know, you'll see on your chairs, there's a list of some of the upcoming um, conversations. And it's like more and more people are saying, well, I want to do one of these conversations. It's become quite interesting for um, all of us to explore this, mm -hmm. you know, not to say we know answers, but just to explore what it is um, that adds meaning what it is that is important for us to talk about. We don't know all of the answers, and I, there aren't right and wrong answers, mm -hmm. but there's so uh, much that I think we can garner in this by, by having this sort of dialogue, by doctors having dialogue with patients, by us having dialogue um, as, as a concerned public working, working together. I want to talk a little bit, too, about dialogues that, that happen or don't happen I guess, when someone is facing the end of their life and they're living with a, a life-threatening disease. And a lot of the, the research has been done in cancer because um, that's what so many people die of in this country. But one study um, showed that oncologists almost always tell patients if they have a curable cancer, um, but they, don't, they only give a prognosis when they're asked for it. So they don't generally have the kind of conversation that you and I had at sort of the better point of what, mm -hmm. what we were doing earlier. And um, they almost never give patients an estimated survival time, which you were very careful to put there, put out um, on the table. And I know we talked about this earlier too, but one study that I found fascinating is that um, it's also what the person is hearing who's having the conversation with their healthcare professionals. So there's a group of, of healthcare professionals who aren't necessarily interested in having these conversations to begin with for the reasons we've talked about, some of them. And then there are people, so in this one study, 58% of the people who the authors made uh, defined them as having an incurable um, disease. The, um, 58% of those people believed they could be cured. Mm -hmm. And so they, so these guys had, um, they developed some educational materials very clear to describe what it was that these patients were facing and the fact that this was probably not a curable condition and what the prognosis might be. So the number of people who thought they had a curable 
disease dropped from 58% to 33%. So I mean, 33% still with all of this, you know, really objective information in front of them said, um, yeah, I still think I have a, or I, I believe I have a curable disease. So that speaks both to what we know and don't know, what we want to know and don't want to know, mm. and, and that important power of hope. So it's, it's this balancing place. Yeah. But I think I just find that fascinating. I, I think it it really is fascinating, and and you know what what I, what comes to mind for me that is the first thing that comes to mind is putting quarters in a slot machine. You know, you just you know you're going to lose your money all the time. I always go to if I ever go to a slot machine place, <laughs> I say okay. Here's the roll of quarters. I'm going to just stay here until they're gone. And they're always gone. <laughs> you know, and then you hear somebody down in the other aisle, you know, is bringing in, you know, $500,000 or something like that. And so that's what brings people to those casinos, right? Because we all think that we're going to win the lottery. You know, it's right there. And I, so I think that there's something in that hope that actually in that gambling nature that is, I think, endemic. Into uh -huh. us, and I don't think that's bad. I don't but either, I think what, but... what that our job is to help redirect that that kind of excitement. You know, it's going to be me. I can do this. To, to that that kind of hope away from the unreal hopes that come from the the kinds of interventions that actually are much more likely to do harm than they are to help. Uh -huh. Or even if they are going to help, if somebody is going to gamble and take that gamble, that they go in with really with open eyes and that they go in being able to, you know, the roll of quarters is gone, mm -hmm. they can stop and yep. then they can take another path. And that you have a partner, that we all have a partner that is helping with whatever that path is. Mm -hmm. If you choose to gamble, all right, that's your nature, go for it. But go in with open eyes, know what the risks are and know what the chances are, you know, that you're going to be pulling that lever and that you're right. going to win, um, or that you're not, and that what the consequences are. And that really is about being conscious, isn't it? It, it yeah, is, is about yeah. a decision to be aware mm -hmm. and to be able to have conversations, to be able to pick up the information that we need, and then to be able to have that consciousness about what it is that we're going through. What's in front of us? That, that's really true, and I think that one of the, I think one of the the, the conundrums or one of the burdens that I, I feel it's some there are, how do us caregivers get to a place where we get past the, well the family says no, don't tell her anything about this. Mm -hmm. um, sure, well, she has a right to know. And that, that's the kind of conversation I can have with a family. Right. But there are a lot of cultures uh, wherein, I think uh, Japanese is one of them, and this is modern Japanese, not traditional, where doctors don't tell anybody mm -hmm. what's going on. If they got a cancer, you don't talk about that. Where did that come from? I mean, what, right. what's going on with that? That takes away the person's right to that knowledge, and that's... That's something, when you're talking about the fact that the uh, oncologist may not tell, and often don't, obviously, mm -hmm. the consequences of treatment in an incurable disease, that's um, yeah, kind of, I can appreciate that that's not hard to do, because you don't want to, this is what I have to offer, you know, this right. is, I, Dr. So-and-so sent you to me, and I'm the oncologist, and so I want to help you. Right. And so here's what I can do. And so I, I don't want to do nothing, 
because he or she didn't send you to me, the oncologist, for me to do nothing. They sent you to me to do something. So, <laughs> and so <laughs> this is what I can do. And even if the something is poisonous, perhaps, and has a very small chance of helping, You're I want to help. Yeah. So, so it's kind of interesting when you think about cultures where they aren't going to tell, and Japan is one of them, where they often don't tell people that they have uh, something, that uh, a cancer or another life-threatening illness. Um, so part of that is probably a difficulty in having the conversation, mm. as well as a not very empowered patient. I mean, there are a lot of pieces to that. When I lived in uh, Germany and my mother-in-law was dying of pancreatic cancer and I was living with her and helping her, um, her doctor, of course, I was an American, right? And uh, her doctors were appalled that I was having these conversations with her about what was going on. I'm like, okay, Muti, what do you want to do now? We know that there's this and there's probably only this long that you have to live. And she said, well, let's go sit down and write the list of people out that I want to invite to my memorial. I said, okay, we're going to go do that. The doctors just about fell out of their chairs. You know, they didn't do that then. Now, this is, you know, 20 years ago in Germany, but still, it's not that uncommon, is it? No, it's um, not. That we don't talk well, even know, to yeah. a person who's dying between doctor right. and patient. Well, you know, what, what comes to mind is that I think we are in a kind of a brave new world of disease in a way, whether it's from all the toxins in the environment such that, so that there's more cancers out there at yeah. any age cohort or that we're living longer and so there's going to be more people who are going to get those diseases which are more common as our immune systems kind of wane a bit and so we're older and they happen more and more to folks that are at. It's, it's a bit of a brave new world. So I, here, here's, I could go back again, 1900, people are dying at age 40-ish. And the chances of them then having, getting to that place because of all the infectious disease, of having the chronic diseases that we now encounter become less. But so now there gets to be a whole profession built around dealing with these chronic diseases, mm -hmm. which weren't that common back then because there weren't that many people living that long. So you couldn't make an industry out of it. <laughs> given how our pharmaceutical, et cetera, industries work. Yeah. But now you can. There's millions and millions of people out there who are living that long. And so there, there's a whole industry that can be built up around what you might call false hope, um, living forever or right. living well forever. Mm -hmm. um, it, on the other, so that may be a bit of a cynical view, but I think that there's, and I don't think that anybody like somebody who's a, you know, a good chemist goes in trying to develop a, some kind of a... a uh, a, a, a new a monoclonal antibody to fight cancer. They go in there with the best intentions of trying to help. But right. when you look at the big picture, what comes out of it is uh, uh, most all the time something that m probably doesn't extend life, at least in the bigger picture. It might for that one particular individual, but doesn't for the whole population. Um, and creates also a, a economic burden and then also a personal burden of a lot of pain and suffering. So, and what I'm saying again is that I think that there is this brave new world of changed expectations that's only a couple generations old, really. It's pretty darn new. You know, 20, 40, 50 mm -hmm. years ago, not much of this stuff was out right. there. People were living a fairly long time, but there weren't, not quite as long as they do now, but there just weren't, there just weren't the number of uh, tools, or at least sort of pseudo-tools, that we have now. And I think we need to look at that. Uh, I do too. I won't go too far down this little rabbit hole, but 
when you talked about monoclonal antibodies, some of them that have come out. So these are mostly what we consider targeted therapies. You hear a lot about personalized medicine now and targeted therapies, and the monoclonal antibodies are right there at the, the front of that. And some of them that are $30,000 a pop mm -hmm. extend life two or three months, mm -hmm. according to the studies. And the studies are sometimes the best of circumstances. Well, at least they don't cost that much if you only live three months then, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's only $90,000. I mean, you know, everybody's got that in the bank. Um, so, I mean, there, there is a lot for us to think about. Yeah, there definitely is. Well, before, I'm going to do some reading in a minute because some folks sent in some really interesting and touching stories that I want to share. But before we do that, I think this might be a good time just to see if people have some comments that they would like to make or, or questions to ask. As Michael passes the straw Based on <laughs> what we've said or what we haven't said. Based on what you said, I just feel very good about your technique for end-of-life conversations. I happen to represent an organization, Compassion and Choices, and we do provide end-of-life care and options for people. So I want everyone to know, if you're terminally ill, you're mentally capable, you're over 18, come talk to me. I uh, see people all over California, and I have volunteers, and I have a lot of information. Uh, Thank about you. your conversation, you know, that we got through a law just last year called the Right to Know Law. You remember that one? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We have brochures. I have some here. But if a doctor tells you, I'm sorry, there's nothing more I can do. It's kind of like don't ask, don't tell, though. You have to ask. Uh -huh. <laughs> he won't tell you. But if you ask, he has to tell you what your options are. Mm -hmm. Or you've got a case. Right. Where Thank are you? you? I'm actually in Santa Rosa, but it's a virtual office. Our headquarters is in Portland and Denver. We're the oldest right to die organization. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Compassion uh, and choices. Okay. Thank you. There was a statistic I heard that um, that after cancer and heart disease, the greatest cause of death was um, medical treatment, and I've heard since then it may actually be the number one cause of death. There, there was an interesting study published, what, about three years ago, maybe, by the Institute of Medicine, mm -hmm. which is a fairly conservative organization right. that looked at it, but this was specific to um, mistakes made in the medical system. And it's, it's, you can get it online at the Institute of Medicine, and they talk about um, the huge number of lives and or morbidity that are um, caused by active treatment. So it's a very I mean, good I know point. Three people. It's a very good point. They died because of medical treatment. That's why I don't go to doctors. <laughs> well, I, I, there, there's I probably some, some, you know, really great stuff that happens and some things that are pretty difficult to take. I think it's, you know, there, Kathy. I think it's a pendulum swing as well. I, I couldn't agree with you more in the sense that there. Iatrogenesis is the name for that stuff, yeah. you know, illness and disease that is fostered or caused by intervention. And there's a, a, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, uh, which Don Berwick had, uh, started. He's a pediatrician out of Harvard who now is the head of the Center for Medicare and Medi-Cal Services, which is a really great thing that this guy who is in yeah. charge of, who started the Institute for Healthcare Improvements in charge of that kind of payment structure, getting paid Medicare, Medi-Cal, or Medicaid, Medicare, Medicaid. Here's why. Because his, his organization is all about getting rid of medical errors. 
and they had they had they've had two initiatives. One is stop the hundred thousand unnecessary deaths every year that happen in hospitals that are caused by mm -hmm. either lack of failures, in other words, failures to diagnose or intervene, or intervening inappropriately, mm. mistakes. Uh, and then there's the next initiative, I believe, was something like, and I can't remember the number exactly, but it's stop the two million um, mistakes that are made outside of the hospital mm. that are contributing to illness and uh, that, that are either omissions or commissions that happen because of the healthcare, uh, healthcare people that are causing problems for people. So there's a big issue, there's a whole bunch of folks out there that are working on trying to make that better. Well, I just want the audience to be sure that they are aware of the fact that over the last four years, the Medical Board of California has required that all physicians re-registering uh, take a course in, in end-of-life care and pain management. And this is for every physician in California. And I think we'll be seeing more of that in time. I go to a lot of the oncology meetings and have been amazed over the last 20 years how when they would have sessions, you know, and these are 25,000 person meetings, sessions about the end of life and death and dying and palliative care, no one came 20 years ago and now the rooms are packed. You can't get in. So I think it's both requirements and interest and I'm hoping that will be. Mm -hmm of help to all of us. No, it's, I, I agree with you. I, when I go to meetings uh, that talk about not just end of life, but, but how to deal with chronic illness and then how to deal with the healthcare system that is going broke, and I don't just mean broke economically, but broke ethically as mm -hmm. well in terms of how we deal with these, these conditions, um, there's a huge interest in making, in making this better. Yeah, thank you. Claire? Um, I just wanted to thank you for sharing that data. I think that's some of the most interesting pieces of data that's coming out is the, the information that's kind of blowing apart the dichotomy of, well, you can do something treatment-wise that's allopathic, um, that, or you can have a shorter life and a higher quality of life. Yeah. And I just I thank you for sharing that. And Saja had passed on to me a couple months ago a New Yorker article that was, I think, in the yeah. August or September mm -hmm. New Yorker. If people don't yeah. read the studies I told Gawande. I, yeah. it's, I think a couple people here brought it. It's a great it's article. It's a great article, and, and it, it yeah. speaks to that question mm -hmm. of perhaps not taking chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, et cetera, uh, might be the option that actually extends your life. And um, I like what you were saying about, like, about just sort of the, uh, the um, you know, adrenal cortex and what might be going on under all the stress of, mm -hmm. of treatment and how that might interfere with lengthening life itself. So. Yeah, thank, thank you, you, Claire. Uh, to tag on to that a little bit, mm -hmm. but one of the things that Gawande says in that article is that there's a, Aetna Insurance Company is actually piloting, to their credit, a, um, an extension of hospice to chronic care management mm -hmm outside of the last six months of life so that people can choose a whole menu, a whole potpourri of kind of care, including just palliative care, two, three years before they're expected to die. Mm -hmm. and, that, and so that it actually is looking at giving options outside of hospital, home care, hospice-like care, humane care that can be, and you can continue, if you want, you can take chemotherapy too. You can do some curative stuff. But it's all being paid for by insurance. That's a good trend. And I think that then it allows the physician or the medical provider to have in their armamentarium something besides the chemotherapy. 
So, right. exactly. so, that, that, you know, so that when the, what you were talking about, you know, well, I was, you were sent to me so I can do something for you. So that something mm -hmm. can have a broader range right. of options. Exactly. Okay. Good. It seemed to me that part of how we've gotten here also is um, the imagery and, and the words we use. And if you're not fighting, mm -hmm. then you've given up. Right. And so besides just sort of my personal discomfort with the battle and the fight and, you know, it's like mm -hmm. that the only other option is giving up. And surely there's a whole lot else in between. And I was hoping you two might speak to that some. Um, I'm hoping that's part of what the entire dialogue here is indeed about. And that's why, you know, when people said, why'd you pick this title? It's, it's a tongue-in-cheek choice to say, you know, gee, fighting till the end is not necessarily the right metaphor or the only, only way to go. And the opposite isn't the only other place either. So I think your, your point is well taken, and that's part of what having these dialogues is, is for. Thank you. <coughs> Any other? Yeah. Um, I spend a large part of my professional life, I work in an ICU, um, trying to convince I'm around a lot of death, all kinds of death. Um, it runs the gamut. And I spend a large part of my time trying to discuss in any way I can, using any kind of intervention I can think of, to discuss with the families why we should stop ventilators, mm -hmm. um, vasopressors, all of this stuff. And occasionally I have success and it's, it's quite rewarding to kind of negotiate a stop to all of this. But some of the things that we've touched on here, if we could, if the physician, I mean, it's way too late by the time mm -hmm. I see these people. Yep. This conversation that we have had here needs to happen mm -hmm. 25 years before mm -hmm. so that families <coughs> just aren't caught up all of a sudden, oh, oh my gosh, we have to decide this like this. Mm -hmm. So what we need, and, and this all plays into so many things. The um, the way our money is funneled, uh, the way we have uh, machines that breathe for you, you know, drugs that keep up a false blood pressure, and this can go on for months right. while the body is rotting. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's, you know, and then every once in a while, just so this isn't a slick condemnation, something really works and someone actually walks out of there. So mm -hmm. that's, that makes it difficult. Mm -hmm. But if we could it's have right. something in our, in our, something with our public health care, which as of yet does not exist, where it was just as important to talk about end of life, way before the end of life, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think we could really start to get somewhere. Uh, can I, I'd like of to course. comment on that. Thank you. That's really helpful. And I think, are you a nurse? Yes. That's, uh, I, you know, even though it's too late when they get to you, I know what that's like having worked there a bunch, um, it's still a huge opportunity to be effective for that family, Absolutely. for other people, 
-hmm. you know, that will like even mm -hmm. the people themselves that are having to tend and not to mention the fact that all you folks and I certainly I think nurses are really at the forefront of making a difference with this because you have to live with it 8 to 12 hours at a shift mm -hmm. whereas the doctors come and go and write the orders. Um, I, but it's, I think the burden definitely needs to be on lots of us including doctors for sure to be able to help people, all of us, to make those decisions way earlier. And even to start the education about that by having elders in schools with grade, kid, grade age kids who can talk about what it's like to be old and approaching the end of their life. So that kids can actually, it's not just one of those, you know, we have a culture of youth, of course, that just kind of just, we're immortal. There's nothing that we have to think about in, those, in, the, in that, at that time in our life. And I think it's, that's a false, that is a false hope. There is something that's, there's a practical thing that's starting to happen around the country, and I'm sure you've seen them called pulsed forms, the physician's yeah. orders for life-saving right. treatment. Uh, and the, the neat thing about those is that as opposed to when I'm on the phone, I'm having to say to somebody, well, what's their code status, you know, or what are, what are their advanced directives? And it's, well, they're a DNR, being do not resuscitate. That's basically, they are or they aren't, right? So if you have, or they're a limited resuscitation, et cetera. But what if you actually, early on, if all of us at some, early on in life, and it, it, this can be repeated over and over because you can change these orders that say, this is what I want. Mm -hmm. This is what I want if my heart isn't beating and I can't breathe, but this is what I want if I am breathing and this is the limit that I want. So somebody who's in their 30s would certainly want something perhaps that's quite, diff quite a bit different from that same person when they're in their 70s or 80s. But it seems that that's a, that kind of document, that kind of active intervention of, on your own to say, this is what I want now. And now this year, this is, it's different. Mm -hmm. This is what I want. And don't do anything else because we can do far too much. Mm -hmm. We can keep the tissue alive a long time way past the time that it's time to have said goodbye in an honorable way. So, and that's getting scarier because there's just a lot of ways that we can keep tissue uh, quote unquote alive for a long, long period of time. Well, and, and to the human side as well of the conversations that you're having, you know, where families don't want to make these choices or have these conversations. When someone has provided this information real clearly, I mean, my poor 21-year-old son knows exactly what I want and don't want. Um, he doesn't know how I would enforce it if I weren't here, but he's, um, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, but it's easier for the families and for anyone else who might have to be helping or deciding when someone is incapacitated but there and alive to not have to make that decision, say this is very clearly what my sister wanted, this is what my mother wanted, this is what my brother wanted. Um, and so those, how, how many people do you think have filled out pulse forms? Very few right now. I would say, well in California, there's other states that instituted this as yeah. a kind of a standard. I don't know if it's a law or an ordinance, but there was something passed in the state recently in the last year I believe here that basically requires that to be something that is offered under certain circumstances. Now, mm -hmm. it's but I'd say right now, well, there are many, many people after age 65, say Medicare life, uh, when they can start a Medicare, will start to fill out a living will. But that's 
that isn't specific enough and it isn't available mm -hmm. enough. A single page, usually it's hot yeah. pink so everybody knows what it looks yep. like, form that actually is sitting on the refrigerator one copy and sitting in some, some place where it can be available to everybody else. Mm -hmm. That's something that very few people have filled out. Where do you out. get them? Where are those forms? There's some actually online. get them online. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can get them online. P-O-L-S-T, right? P-O-L-S-T, Physician's yeah. Orders for Life-Saving Treatment. And you can take them to, but sorry, Kathy, you didn't have to, maybe have to go to a doctor for this, maybe not. <laughs> but, uh, but you can get, you can get somebody who has a license to actually sign one of those things so it looks, you know, that it's quote-unquote, I guess, a yeah. legal document. But they're available online. You can also, I don't know um, if uh, bookstores are carrying them or not, but it's the kind of thing that stationery stores used to have when they were stationery stores. Well, is it something you could have in, the, in your office? Um, yes, and eventually we will. We don't now, and this is another thing I wanted to say, that we have, we're now, we now are paperless, <laughs> so we have electronic medical records. The good news about that is that there's this thing called meaningful use for electronic records, which is all about trying to make healthcare patient or person-centered. You'll hear, you've probably heard a lot of you heard these cliches already, and there'll be more and more of them coming out. Patient-centered medical, or what we call healthcare home, patient-centered healthcare home, meaningful use for electronic records. So what, what is, by, night, by 2014, when healthcare reform, if the Republicans don't knock it apart, um, it happens, and it's in full, in all of its glory, uh, it will be required that, that almost every primary care place, you know, doctors, et cetera, osteopaths, uh, and et cetera, that do primary health care will have to have electronic records that allow patients to have access to their records so that, that all of us would have access with the right kind of, you know, security, password, all that kind of stuff to get, in, to get into your records wherever you are. So that's important. Now, in that same meaningful use stuff is uh, our criteria for saying advanced directives, including something that is like a post form, will be included in that, that record. So everybody's moving toward there being a unified way of being able to say, you know, we have to, we, everybody should have access to, and so if you end up, somebody ends up in an accident or a heart attack or something, and ends up in a hospital 200 miles from home, that eventually, and hopefully in the near future, that form and all the other important information about what you want will be available to whoever needs it. That's, I think that's really important. Other questions? No, just a comment, if Soup. I may. Um, so I work at Sutter and Santa Rosa, and um, I just want to offer a sense of hope in this integrative, or the, the ingredients that you're talking about with what hospice and palliative care offer to patients when they come in and they actually are um, you know, they're, they're engaged in their end-of-life process, can be extended, I think, into an acute care setting. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something that is actually happening. I think the pendulum is swinging and that integrative care is definitely coming back. It's the buzzwords throughout all mm -hmm. healthcare at the moment. It's just the, the question is, how, how does that get transferred? How does it get transformed? But it is happening, and I think that the ingredients of what you're offering is what's interesting, and how to qualify, quantify that in, um, in making it a, a possibility. Great, thank you. I, 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 what I, a couple things come to mind. Number one, I think 
you are in a good environment and they aren't all that good, that's the bad news. I mean, in other words, it's spotty mm -hmm. as to where that kind of integrative health care and the kind of, uh, of um, options that the providers make available to people mm -hmm. uh, are. Uh, it should be universal. Yeah. And a place like Sutter, where it does get offered in Santa Rosa and Sutter, and I think in, in many hospitals, certainly in this area, uh, it, there is no question that there is a trend back in that direction, mm -hmm. and that's exactly the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I just I, I wish that it were more universal, because you know that it's pretty darn spotty, unfortunately, and it doesn't it hasn't it hasn't. Uh, you know, the idea of regulating that doesn't feel right, mm -hmm. but the, the idea of somehow educating to it becomes really an important part of, of what we ought to be, um, uh, we ought, we ought to be spreading. Mm -hmm. yeah. well, may I just add a quick comment to that? Because I think that's exactly right in that we've just had integrative care classes for all RNs throughout Sutter, and yet actually you can't give a lesson in it. What really needs to happen is the conversations. Mm -hmm. So because that, that sense of caring and um, there's just a non-quantifiable mm -hmm. conversation that's happening just by being in relationship. It is. And question. as a long, long time patient advocate, I always look at the side of the equation too that is those of us who are going into the system, who are speaking to the doctors, who are speaking to the nurses, you know, our ability and our voice in being able to say, this is the kind of health care I want. I want to have these conversations. You know, a person who is going to talk to a physician, I've sat in many situations like this where I've been driving the conversation. And so we can also take that voice of people who are coming into the system mm -hmm. to say this is the kind of care we want. We, we want to be having these conversations. We want to, I, I want you to look at all of me, all of who I am as a human being, and bring that into the conversation. So I, I appreciate that comment. Thank you. KWMR is also having these kinds of conversations and trying to be part of Good. This conversation and, and uh, education with uh, Ladbauer and Dr. Uh, Ladbauer and Dennis McCullough, who wrote My Mother, Your Mother. Mm -hmm. um, they have a show every other week, uh, every other Saturday at 11, called Slow Medicine. And this is exactly the Great. stuff they're trying to address. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, I, um, I just have a question. Yes, ma'am. Can you um, make a distinction for me between palliative care and hospice care because sometimes people choose hospice care when they're when they have a terminal disease but they're not right. they're discontinuing treatment that is specifically for um, continuing their life but they're not they're not imminently dying let's yes. say I mean I know you're supposed to be six months so yeah, what is the true. actual difference in the care that you're given in the drugs that you're given or the or the point of view well I think it's uh, it, it is somewhat semantical because the um, palliative care on the face of it means that that patient and the caregivers are choosing to not do anything that is life extending, is meant to be life extending. Now that it becomes very gray and I'm glad that it does actually because there are some instances where for example antibiotics could be perceived to be life extending but they also could just be used to make somebody comfortable mm -hmm. because they have pain with pneumonia and so that it hurts. Um, you could even make a case for some chemotherapy to be actually palliative because it relieves pain. It debulks or you know, shrinks a tumor. 
so it, it makes it uh, you know, not hurt as much. So, but that, so that the, the definition of palliative care, while it has a lot of grayness to it, and there's a lot of fuzziness around the edges because of just what I said, um, is, meant, is not meant to extend life. And it's meant palliative, meaning that it actually relieves the discomfort or uh, the, the, the uh, ill effects of the disease. And that's that's how I would define it. And what was the other? Oh, the hospice care. Is that what yeah, you? Yeah. So, so I well, was just asking. Yeah. And so I think I hope I answered that in the sense that hospice care it means that I mean the way that Medicare pays for hospice care is that there has to be a 51 percent chance that the person is not going to make it for the next six months. Well, you know that's something that's just obviously subjective. And but it's so that people often graduate from hospice several times. <laughs> Mark Buckwald wrote beautifully about that. Mike, excuse me, just one point on this. Isn't it also true, we had a doctor who was talking to us recently about this, and he said that, the, uh, that there was a big distinction in the reimbursement structure for hospice and palliative care. Absolutely. And that the, important, that the insurance companies mm -hmm. gave a, a fixed amount to hospice per right. day, which wasn't a lot. Right. And that meant that if palliative radiation, for example, would be helpful, it was very hard for them to prescribe it within that small amount. Whereas if the person had gone to palliative care, they were still on a reimbursement structure in which the palliative radiation could be provided. So, it's, I mean, one of the, the real differences is that, at least as I understood from this physician, I'd love to be corrected if this is not true, that palliative care provides a wider array of therapeutic interventions within the reimbursement structure than hospice care. It does. It, it does. It, someone, that's right. And there is a place where someone who is getting palliative care can enter hospice. Right. And that the palliative care, while it's been begun, doesn't have to be stopped at that moment. Right. But there is, a, there is kind of a, a spectrum that goes yeah. from that. The insurance, Medicare, et cetera, definitions of what is palliative care and how it gets reimbursed, mm -hmm. uh, which all that, that compensation structure clearly needs to be looked at again. Yeah. <laughs> That's hugely. But yeah. you're right. That's right. But also, okay. in hospice care, Michael, you can you get certain services that maybe palliative care wouldn't be reimbursed, such uh -huh. as counseling and mm -hmm. or home health aid. Uh -huh. So, from the radiation or chemotherapy or antibiotic perspective, maybe you get a better reimbursement rate with palliative care. But I think if it's still the same, you get some things that just wouldn't be covered at all, Thank or you. wouldn't be reimbursed That's at right. all. So I think it's kind of you have to just sort of individualize and decide when you want to move from one to the other or the back and forth. And there's. We so need to look at the money part of this, <clears throat> even though we're trying not to discuss money, because there's still palliative or um, um, hospice, there's still far more money allocated to putting you on a ventilator mm -hmm. than all of it combined. And that, that just, it's, you know, it's like mm -hmm. a funnel. And whole industries are built around right. this. And yeah. That that's an entire topic for us. <laughs> I mean, it is. Yeah. That's right. huge, and we could spend. Would, yeah, but it's in. Yeah. I'm not trying to minimize yeah. it in any way, but to say yeah. that we need to expand that dialogue. Yeah. It's it's huge. Yeah, I, I do. Um, want, I want to just put an exclamation point on what you just mm -hmm. said. Yeah, and, and I'll say, don't get me started here, yeah. because that that me is too. that <laughs> is a huge conversation, and I just want to. I just I just want to just emphasize briefly, hospitals survive on full beds. 
And the more people that are in more intense, not even necessarily ICUs, but intense care, the more money yep. they make. There's, it's not, there aren't bad people, it's a bad system. Mm -hmm. And they need to get compensated for helping as a whole spectrum of care to keep people healthy. Hospitals do. But they are the 800-pound gorilla. They've got huge amounts of those systems, have huge amounts of money. And until that whole reimbursement scheme changes, we're still going to be struggling with pennies for hospice care and not much more for palliative care and a lot more for intensive care. Um, the Dartmouth has what they call the Atlas Project, which people have probably heard about, where they've taken a lot of these healthcare statistics and spending statistics and taken a look at them. And the variation across the country um, is, is extraordinary in how much is spent on care in one place compared to another with limited or no difference in the quality of, uh, in the outcomes mm -hmm. in any way, in the quality of the care, the quality of life of the patient, or the extension of life. And so they, California is very high on the spectrum. Places like Mayo and Cleveland Clinic, which don't operate on a fee-for-service um, system but have a, a sort of care-for-the-whole-being kind of reimbursement structure, spend a lot less and the outcomes are just as good. So it's, a, it's an interesting, uh, there are people who are beginning to look at this in ways that I think can be very helpful to us, but an important dialogue. So I would like to end with just a few stories because people have been kind enough to send some in. Um, so to just take us back into that space where Mike and I began this about people and their conversations and their dialogues. So if you will allow me this. Um, this one came from Yanni Chapman, who isn't here with us today, but who works with us in the Cancer Help Program, and who is also, um, she is a, a nurse by training, and she helps people. She goes and is with people, a midwife to the dying in, mm -hmm. in ways and has some beautiful experiences and some difficult ones that she shares with us. She says, I remember an older man who had a loving wife and children and a huge, highly educated team of friends and professionals around him who had managed to keep him alive many years with a cancer that had metastasized to the brain. I always thought that it was the brain mets that kept him unaware that his end was approaching. Even while those around him were saying goodbye uh, in the same goodbye mode. He accepted dear friends' visits, oblivious to their pain and sense of impending loss. I was with him for his last breath, which was when his lungs completely filled with fluids and even positional adjustments could not open any sacs, air sacs to oxygen. He would not talk about death. He would not share with his wife what his wishes were for his body or his possessions. He could not go there because death had no reality in his experience of himself. I've wondered if this is not some inbuilt, inbuilt design function for the organism. After that last breath came, when he went to take another one, there was no air, only fluid. His look of surprise is something I will always hold in my heart. I started telling him what was happening so that his very so that his very conscious and wise mind could assimilate the present moment reality and he could provide himself a means of moving out of this world. He remained conscious, intently listening for several minutes 
without struggling for the breath that would not come. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other one I'll read is a poem called Untie. These days, and this is written by an alumna of the Cancer Health Program. These days I live in double knots, always in two places. One, my sister's room, watching for an ending I don't want to begin. I take my niece to swimming lessons. She's in the turtle group. Sit poolside while she paddles, blinking in the sun, breathing in sweetness, chlorinated air. We return to a borrowed house where the shades are drawn. Turtle goes to Grandma. I check on the IV, feed my sister yogurt with live cultures. She eats all I offer, then vomits in a bin. The nurse says, at this stage, she can't make use of food. My stubborn sparring partner is renouncing all her roles, virtual artist, tender mother, struggling wife. She speaks only word salad, that we're learning a new language, so we're learning a new language, hands and eyes in present tense. Her skeleton grows eloquent a little more each day, reveals what I'm afraid, yet curious, to know. What will it take for her to die? How will it be for me? Hmm. When her husband arrives with his guitar, I go to restaurants, eat burgers, malts, and fries. It's good to be alive, and I will bear the guilt. Wish I were the type who could flirt up a one-night stand. Awake now to the mysteries in another diner's lives, in other diners' lives. Tonight I sleep on a cot at her bedside in a room we've never shared. Doors I've shut against her open. Her voice draws me a picture of the unfamiliar land where she, where she searches for a car. I have no compass. Just relax and let her drive. So thank you, Mike. Thank Thanks you, to all Thanks, of everybody. you for joining us this afternoon. And come to the next one.